Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before introducing today's guest, I want to encourage listeners to fill out our annual survey, voting for your favorite episodes of 2017 as well as telling us about yourself and your listening experience at EconTalk. So please go to econtalk.org, and in the upper left-hand corner, you'll find a link to the survey. Thank you for a great year, and I hope to make 2018 better. Today is December 21st, 2017, and my guest is Johnny Anides. He is the C.F. Renborg Chair in Disease Prevention at Stanford University, Professor of Medicine, Professor of Health Research and Policy, Professor by Courtesy of Biomedical Data Science, Professor by Courtesy of Statistics, co-director of the Meta Research Innovation Center at Stanford, director of the PhD program in epidemiology and clinical research. His 2005 paper from PLOS Medicine, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False, has been the most accessed article in the history of PLOS with 2.5 million hits. And he claims, or perhaps concedes, that he loves to be constantly reminded that he knows next to nothing, an attitude that I try to embrace as well. He is also the author, along with T.D. Stanley and Aristos de Suliagos, of a recent paper in, in the economic journal titled The Power of Bias in Economics, which is going to be our main subject for today, although I'm sure we'll get into many other things. John, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you for the very kind invitation. Now, we're in a very interesting time for science and social science, and it's been a, a subject, what sometimes is called the replication crisis. Uh, in psychology and now spreading into other fields has been a frequent topic on this program. Uh, it comes down to the fact that, going back to your 2005 paper, a concern that indeed most published results are false. Uh, let's talk about what you've been examining recently in the economics literature in your recent paper and what you found. So in, in the paper that we just published, uh, we looked at uh, all the meta-analysis on uh, economics literature topics that we could identify, and we found 159 topics that had been subjected to uh, such evidence synthesis of uh, whatever data had been available. That included uh, more than uh, 6,700 empirical studies and about 64,000 estimates of economic parameters. And we, we basically tried to use these uh, evidence synthesis, these meta-analysis as a tool to understand, um, first of all, how big are the studies done? How well-powered are they to detect uh, kind of average typical effects that might be circulating out there? And uh, also, what would that mean in terms of estimating the potential for, uh, for bias that could be generated? So how different would the results be if uh, one were to focus on uh, well-powered studies uh, as compared to the, the full mix of, of all studies that uh, were available. So we, we saw a pattern that we have seen also in other fields. In, in a sense, the, the footprint of uh, the economics literature that we analyzed was pretty similar to the footprint of neuroscience literature. Uh, even though economics has very little to do with neuroscience, apparently, they both have the same pattern of using mostly small studies, underpowered studies, and having pretty similar patterns of bias. So we estimated a median statistical power of about uh, uh, 18%, one eight. 
And we also found that it is plausible that uh, the large majority of the reported effect sizes in these topics are substantially exaggerated. Uh, it's very common to see an exaggeration of twofold and uh, about 30% or, or a third uh, would be inflated by fourfold. Uh, so, well, let's, uh, uh, yeah. Let's back up a little bit for, for listeners who aren't uh, as versed in these kind of issues as, as some might be. Uh, I want to talk about two issues, one very basic and then one quite uh, – it's also basic, but it's quite challenging. So I want to start with the meta-analysis. So when you looked at 64,000 estimates, you're, you were not personally combing through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of papers and looking at, say, to take one example, the impact of the minimum wage on employment uh, in, in 132 different studies. What you did is you took one study that had looked at all these studies – and use that as your basis. So meta-analysis is often justified as a way to avoid the problem of, well, just one study. So we're going to not just look at one study and not claim it's the best one or the one that maybe confirms my biases. But rather, I'm going to say, I'm not going to just look at this one. I'm going to look across the whole literature and, and look at an average effect. And you were doing this across – you were looking at these kind of meta-analyses across – all kind, an incredibly diverse set of of economic uh, areas of economic research, right? That's true. So, so these are topics where someone else had already um, decided that a meta analysis was was worthwhile doing and had done one. Um, you know, at the same time, this gives the advantage of having some. Um, information that has already been collected, but we also need to reanalyze it in a standardized fashion so that the calculations would be comparable across all these 159 topics. So, you know, you can uh, use these data to apply the same methods for synthesis and for understanding um, the, the weights and the heterogeneity and uh, uh, have some tests for publication bias using the same tools and the same methods across all these topics. Now, the fact that there is a meta-analysis already means that uh, we're talking about uh, a literature that may not be fully representative of uh, everything that exists in economics. Uh, so um, these meta-analyses are heavily um, uh, predominant for uh, observational designs, not necessarily experimental designs, but, but this may not necessarily be so far off from the uh, overall economics literature where observational non-randomized designs are far more common compared to experimental designs. And and a second issue is that uh, these meta-analyses pertain to topics that probably on average have more studies than the average topic that has been studied in the literature. Uh, there's probably a lot of topics that you have a single paper and nobody wants to do a second one. <laughs> Correct. Um, and, so th and these you know, are probably not going to be the typical situation that you will see in a meta-analysis where you have 130 studies, even though these 130 studies would not be exactly the same. I just want to digress for a minute, and then we'll go deeper into the issue of power and statistical significance. But to digress for a minute, is there what, what's your feeling about the? Uh, you know, as I said feeling. Uh, it's a it's a somewhat subjective question. What's your feeling about the use of meta-analysis as a way to overcome? Uh, this issue of just, it's quote, just one study. Isn't it, uh, if everyone's using the same methodology and has made the same mistake, a meta-analysis isn't really any more comforting than a single study. So, so what do we know about 
it, do we know anything about, say, the meta-analysis of, of uh, some area of economics? Is there any reason to think that a meta-analysis is more reliable than, than a random draw from the, the individual studies? So I, I need to extrapolate probably from economics and, and look at the meta-analysis literature and empirical comparisons of meta-analysis against single studies, large studies, or different types of designs in other areas of science. Because um, in a way, meta-analysis has probably been underused in economics compared to other fields. So we could find 159 topics, while if you go to medicine, uh, there's about 100,000 meta-analysis that have been published to date or done and uh, it's it's a magnitude, or we're actually three orders of magnitude more compared to what has been done in economics. So we, we have far more experience from meta-analysis in some fields compared to others, and we know also more about the caveats and the strengths and the weaknesses of meta-analysis. I, I cannot answer in a, in a black and white fashion that meta-analysis is always better than a, than a single study. I mean, obviously, if you have an extremely well done study and uh, everything has been very thoughtfully taken care of and and the way that it's run and analyzed and reported is perfect and on the other hand you have a meta analysis of small messy uh, horrible studies uh, <laughs> I, I cannot really claim that the meta analysis is going to be more reliable just because you have more studies on board but in principle uh, science depends on cumulative knowledge. I mean, that's a a very basic uh, premise for for science, that we are looking at the totality of evidence, and the totality of evidence is going to tell us something more compared to any single study. Now, a single study may be the best among the lot, but even then, uh, these other studies can still tell us something because they map a universe, and even their deficiencies are very interesting to note. So what a meta-analysis can do is one school of thought try to give you the definitive answer, which I think is untenable because there's hardly ever a definitive answer. We're just trying to approximate closer to to the truth, whatever that truth is. The, The second approach, second school of thought, is that it is a tool to look at the cumulative evidence and be able to compare studies and see patterns, and see patterns of data, patterns of bias, or, or footprints of bias, and uh, lead to some interesting hypotheses about why this pattern of, of data is seen, and what does it mean, and how could we fix a problem if that seems to be the uh, footprint of, of some problem well, that I mentioned, is causing this pattern of bias. I, I bring it up because... You know, there are so many areas now in uh, social psychology where a result that someone might have questioned it in the past and was told, are you kidding? The, the, the evidence is overwhelming. There have been dozens of studies that show blah, 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 where blah, blah, blah could be priming or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then it turns out all those dozens of studies have small sample sizes, and it turns out none of them perhaps replicate with a large sample and I, I just I, I bring that up because I think it's there. There is a growing use of meta analysis in economics. Um, the issue that's been brought up recently that that's I think extremely important is uh, this issue. It's it's not it's not literally economics, but it's work that was done by economists. It's the question of whether deworming uh, a population in a in a very poor country is going to help their economic future. If you mm-hmm. take the children, you deworm them, and 
a study was done by some economists, uh, Michael Cremer and others, who said, found that it was, it was fantastic. This generated deworming, and this generated a lot of money uh, in the effective altruism movement to be donated toward deworming. And then a meta-analysis was done, and it found no effect. Now, mm-hmm. now the response of the people who were in favor of deworming responded by saying, oh, that's, those are bad meta-analyses. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's a complicated uh, – it's hard to figure out how the world works, as, as you, you and I think both know. Yeah, I, I think that uh, a meta-analysis has some validity and some problems, and it, it has to be seen on a case-by-case basis in terms of whether the validity is is more than the problems. A meta-analysis is not going to fix the literature that is flawed. I mean, if, if every single study is flawed, you will get a flawed result from the meta-analysis, but, but you can still get a sense of what is the uh, impact of these flaws and, and what is the impact of these problems in design and and how do they comparatively affect the results of different studies. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wider picture, and in, in that way, uh, I think it is useful. Yeah, <laughs> Even if the result is not accurate and if it's not credible, it is useful to see how does that universe of studies look like. Uh, sometimes I see meta-analysis where it's very obvious that all the studies are completely flawed, but just by looking at that universe of studies, you can really get a better understanding of, of what is going on here. While looking at a single study or a single observation, it's not so easy to to decide. Yeah, I brought it up more as a digression, not so much as an indictment mm-hmm. of, of yeah. your survey, because the fact that you use meta-analysis is not, you're not claiming you found the truth there. You're more interested in using this these existing meta-analyses to uh, to uh, understand broad patterns in the in the econo- empirical economics literature, right? And, um, and you're looking at comparative patterns. So you, you know you're basically asking uh, larger studies: how do they compare compared to uh, smaller studies? Uh, that's a very basic pattern in in the data that you can address pretty much across any topic, and it, it, it's not dependent on what is the exact uh, question being asked. So now let's look at the empirical finding in your work that you mentioned that the average, I think you said the average level of power in these studies was 18%. Uh, Most listeners won't know what that means. Uh, I only know what it means because I've been getting ready for this interview. And I confessed to you before we started the interview that though I was trained as a PhD and got a PhD in economics at the University of Chicago, (laughs) I never heard that phrase power applied to statistical analysis. What we did and I think what most economists, many economists still do, is we had a data set. We had something we wanted to discover and, and, and test or examine or explore, depending on the nature of the problem. And our goal was to, was to find a T-statistic that was greater than two, uh, which is technically a, a measure of statistic, what's called statistical significance. And most statistical significant meaning... Uh, a p-value of 0.05 or smaller, and most, if not all, not all, but most published results in many fields using econometric or statistical analysis in a multivariate way, meaning multiple uh, variables trying to explain the pattern in a dependent variable, uh, have to get across that hurdle. You have to get a, a, a p-value of 0.05 or less. There has to... Uh, it has to be statistically significant. And when you do that, it's golden, and you can publish it in theory. Uh, not every time, but you got a shot. If you don't find it, you're not likely to be able to publish it. And so mm-hmm. that, I think, 
most economists today know a lot about that, although we might not define it exactly correctly. I struggle with it sometimes myself. So that's on the one hand. On the one hand, we're saying, why don't you, I'm going to let you describe it. So describe statistical significance uh, at the 0.05 level. What, is, what does that mean? So um, I, I think that uh, we have to be a little careful here because we didn't really make assumptions about statistical significance at the uh, 0.05 level here for, for these meta-analysis. What, what we tried to ask is what is the power of a study uh, to be able to get uh, a result that would cross that level of statistical significance at the 0.05 level uh, if the true effect uh, out there is X. And now the, qu the question is, how do you know the true effect? I mean, nobody really knows the true effect. There's different ways to approximate it. And uh, one way to approximate it plausibly is to say that, uh, uh, well, maybe if you consider all the evidence, then the true effect is... Uh, best represented or best approximated by all the evidence. That's the best shot that we can have. A second approach would be to look at what are the effect sizes in the largest studies, and then the question is to define what exactly do we mean by the largest studies. And, and one approach is to look at, for example, the top 10%, the, the 10% of the reported estimates from the most precise studies, the, the ones that have the, the least uncertainty in their estimation. The other is to take the top one, which is the most precise of all, uh, so the, the largest study in a sense, the one that has the least uncertainty. And the third is, is a more sophisticated approach, uh, which we call PTPEESE, uh, -E -E -E, um, <laughs> precision effect test and precision effect estimate with standard error, uh, which basically is, is a regression, and it tries to in a way, estimate what would have been the effect if you go towards an uh, infinite size study. So it's, it's extrapolating from, from what we have to the, the ideal very large study, uh, what would it look like? So th there's different ways to approach uh, what might be plausible effect sizes, and then you ask what is the power to detect these plausible effect sizes. Power meaning uh, if that effect is there, um, how likely is it that uh, with the type of sample size that I have in a given investigation, in a given design, I will be able to get a statistical significant result at less than 0 0.05. And, let's, let's, and this is what, what the power is practically. Let's that do that again. Estimated. Let's say that again. So let's try to put it in the context of, uh, of an actual um, – empirical question that might be examined in economics. And the, the one you, mm -hmm. you, one of the ones you mentioned in the, in the paper is the impact of a minimum wage on employment. And I caveat, of course, there are many other aspects and impacts of the minimum wage besides whether you have a job or not. It can affect the number of hours. It can affect the training you receive. It can affect the way you're treated on the job. And it bothers me that economists only look at this one thing, uh, you know, this one zero variable, job or not, number of jobs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. without looking at the quality outside of the financial monetary aspect. But that's what we look at often, and it, it is the central question in, in the area of minimum wage policy. Does it reduce or even expand potentially, which I think is crazy, but okay, a lot of people don't agree, that whether it expands or reduces the number of jobs. Now, 
in such a empirical analysis of the minimum wage, how would you describe the power of that test? Meaning there's some effect that we don't know uh, of that impact. Mm-hmm. The power is fill in the blank. The probability that. Right. So, so uh, for for that particular question, um, the median power, if I recall, that we estimated was something like eight or nine percent. It is. I looked. Uh, I, I've got it right here. It yeah. is eight point five percent. That means yeah. here you go. Eight point five percent. What is so? What does eight point five percent mean so, in that it, context? It means that um, if you if you estimate for each one of these studies that have been done, what are the chances that they would have found? that effect. They, they would have found a, a statistically significant signal if the effect was what is suggested by the largest studies, for example. Uh, their median chance would be 8.5%. Uh, so 50% of the studies uh, would have 8.5% chances or less to be able to detect that signal, w- which is amazing. I mean, if you, if you think of that, the, these studies are... are, are or, or depressing, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, they, they they basically have no chance of uh, of finding that. Uh, so even what, if it is there. So does this work uh, on both sides very, of the very question? Difficult for them to to pick it up. Does this work on both sides of the question? Meaning, uh, it obviously depends on on your null hypothesis. So if your null hypothesis is minimum wages have no effect, and I'm going to test whether they have an effect, you're going to say, does that mean I'm going to find? that I only have an 8% chance of finding that effect? Yeah, it, it would mean that even if that effect is there, um, you would have 8.5% chance of, of detecting it. So most of the time, so, so I would you, not so find most it. Most of the time, you would, you would find a, a non-significant result, uh, a quote-unquote null result, or seemingly null result, even though there is some effect there. But it could go now, the other way, first, too, because your, your null hypothesis could be that the minimum wage has an effect, right? And I'm testing whether there's no effect and I might not be able to find no effect. Is that correct to go in that opposite direction? So what what happens in the opposite direction is that when uh, you're operating in an underpowered environment, uh, you have two problems. One is the obvious that you have a, a very high chance of false negative because this is exactly what power means. It, it means that... Uh, um, 92%, if you have an 8, 8% power, 92% of the time, you will not be able to pick the signal, even though it is there. So it's a false negative. At the same time, you have the problem of having a very high risk of a false positive when you do see something that has a statistically significant p-value attached to it. And it could be an entire false positive, or it could be a gross exaggeration of the effect size. And um, it, it could be that the smaller the power that you are operating with, if you do detect something, even if it is real, the uh, magnitude of the effect size will be uh, substantially inflated. So the, the, the smaller the power, the greater the average inflation of the effect that you would see when you do detect it. So two major problems. Um, with low power, lots of false negatives. Second problem, lots of false positives and gross exaggeration of the effect sizes. Yeah, I think uh, if Andrew- you add a touch of bias to that, <laughs> and obviously there's 
many different biases, but many of the biases that operate uh, have that their common denominator that people are trying to find something rather than trying not to find something. I mean, it, it, it makes sense, doesn't well it? Well said, yeah. <laughs> you know, so someone is trying to uh, maybe sometimes uh, change the analysis a little bit or try another analytical mode or uh, add some more observations or uh, do a few more experiments or, or keep trying until they get a statistically significant p-value somehow. Uh, so if, if you add this sort of bias, which based on what we have seen across multiple fields seems to be highly prevalent, then the, the rate of the false positives and the exaggeration really escalate further. And, and they can really skyrocket uh, pretty quickly. <laughs> and as a result, unless these these biases are contained uh, pretty thoroughly. As a result, you get these dramatic papers with these huge impacts of some variable, some policy, and it's they're not they're not reliable. Uh, I think Andrew Gelman calls this a type M error, where M is magnitude. Magnitude. Yeah. Right. So so here's the here's the part that's confusing for me, and I think I have some understanding of it, but I, I find many economists just literally do not understand this at all, and certainly uh, everyday normal human beings are going to struggle with it. So here, here's the question. Let's say I have a, small, quote, small sample. And, of course, small is – it depends on the size, the magnitude I'm trying to measure and um, all kinds of things as well. But I'm going to use that phrase. I have a sample – a better way to say it is going to be underpowered. But let's just say it's small to start with so that people can understand what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So I have a small sample. I take a sample of – Let's say I want to figure out whether uh, men are taller than women. And so I go out and I sample 10 men and 10 women. And, you know, I can find lots of different things in that sample. I could happen to have just chosen 10 relatively short men and 10 relatively tall women. And I could look, it would look like women are taller than men. But that result, given that they're only, it would have to be a very big difference given the size of the sample. The defi- by definition, Statistical significance is going to take account of the sample. So I might find that women are taller, but it's unlikely in a small sample it's going to be statistically significant. Another example people use sometimes is a a fair coin. If I flip a coin 100 times, I might get 55 heads. In fact, I'm going to get 55 heads fairly often out of 100 tosses. doesn't mean the coin is biased. It's just the sample's not large enough to, Mm -hmm. to measure whether the coin is fair or not. So a lot of times then what economists do is that when they get a – psychologists as well and other, other folks, when they get a small sample statistically significant result, in other words, they find a statistically different – it's unlikely that, that this uh, chance this, – these data were the result of uh, just chance. They then say, well, if I found it with a small sample – just think how big I would – how statistically significant it would be with a large sample. So when economists find statistically significant results in small samples, and the definition of small here is going to be essentially underpowered, they're going to say, without looking at the power, they're going to say, hey, look how great this result is. You can't deny it because it's even true in a small sample. And then mm-hmm. you come mm-hmm. along and Andrew Gelman and others and say, actually, it's, wor- it's the opposite. Exactly. With a small sample, the more likely it is what you found literally isn't true. So can you try to explain that intuition? I'm sorry for the length of the question. Yeah, so, so this is what we call the, the winner's curse. And it's pretty much the same phenomenon that, that I was describing earlier, that uh, if, if, if there is a, a signal, uh, a, a true signal to be detected, 
and you're running in an underpowered environment with very small studies, with very few observations, like the 10 and 10 uh, sample that you described. Um, if you uh, find it, you will find it in, in a way that it will present itself in a much bigger magnitude compared to what it really is. Because if, if it presents the way that it really is, it will not be significant. So you will not detect it, you will not uh, say Eureka, you will not open a champagne bo bottle. But, but if you're lucky or unlucky in a way, <laughs> uh, if, if you have this winner's curse to uh, chance upon a configuration of the data where this is very prominent, um, then you'll say, wow, look at that, this is fantastic, this is amazing, this is huge. But uh, you know that the true effect is going to be much smaller. Uh, now, it could be much smaller or it could be nothing at all. <laughs> so, so that's the question. Um, well, I, I understand it could be smaller. The, the hard part, I think, yeah. the intuition is, and I guess uh, just to back up for a sec, I understand why in a small sample I could have a false negative. I could say, oh, there's nothing there. But come on, you only had 10 women and 10 men. Let's say they came out to be exactly the same height. And you say, well, I guess women and men are the same height. Well, that would be silly because your sample is yeah, too small to, to find it and it's underpowered. And you, you're likely to have a false negative. Why am I likely to get that significant result in that finding and that it's, mis that it's a false positive? So um, I think that it, it could be either a false positive or uh, an exaggerated, sometimes grossly exaggerated effect, uh, depending on how small the sample is that you were working on. It, it depends on, on what is the uh, pattern of effects circulating across the, the field at large. So if, if someone is working in a field that, um, let's say, there's a, a lot of prior evidence and uh, very strong theory and uh, other types of insights that have really guided us to create questions where the answers to many of those are likely to be non-null effects, uh, then uh, you're likely to fall into the pattern of just finding an exaggerated magnitude of the effect size rather than a complete false positive. If you're working in a field where you're just um, uh, completely agnostic, black box, uh, just searching in the dark, and actually in a field where there's not much to be discovered, uh, there's just tons of noise, I'm practically then, if it's all noise, <laughs> no matter what significant results you get, it, it will be a false positive. So there's a continuum here. There's a continuum of, uh, of different fields and different priors of how many out of 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 hypotheses that we're testing uh, are likely to be hiding something that is genuinely non-null. And uh, there's a lot of variability in that regard. I think that economics is mostly operating in, let's say, middle ground, uh, but, but there's a lot of, of variability. Uh, I, I think that people, for example, who go uh, to do a very large randomized trial that is very expensive, uh, most of the time, I would argue, they have thought very carefully that that's not going to be a waste of money, and uh, they have a decent chance of, of of showing something. Uh, I don't think that someone would do that's a real. trial. That's real. Yeah. They're, they're going to show yeah. something, trust me. <laughs> but yeah. it's, it's, well, saying, I, I think that if, if they had a chance of uh, one in a million of finding something and uh, then they say, I, I'm going to do a, a trial that is going to 
to require $50 million to run, I, I don't think that that would be a good investment. Sure. Um, conversely, there's other fields where we're in a completely agnostic mode and we, we just ask hypotheses like crazy and we ask millions of such hypotheses and this is very common in, in big data uh, science. And we, we know that the yield is going to be very low. We're, we're just looking through a haystack and there's a few needles in there. Uh, so th these needles are few and, and most of what we're going to be detected is likely to be a false positive unless we find ways to further document that what we have found is really true, which means typically doing more such studies, having very stringent statistical significance thresholds, requiring very stringent replication to see it again and again. And then we can say, well, no, that's, that's true. So there's, there's a continuum and each field is operating in a different uh, point within that continuum. I think most of economics research I would dare say is operating somewhere in middle values of, of that continuum, so not completely agnostic and not very high prior, uh, but there is a range and different studies may be at higher or lower levels within that range. To come back to this question of, of this intuition of discovering a, a result that's probably spurious, a false positive or a large false positive, the way I would read your perspective on this is that there are two sources of that mistake. One is just noise. Sometimes you're just going to draw from the urn of life a particularly unrepresentative result. But the other is publication bias, that I'm going to keep changing my specification, adding variables, changing the sample, et cetera, to make sure that I can get a publishable result and I'll strangle the date until it screams, in which case I'll get that, that statistical significance. And I assume it's both of those working together. It's not just yeah. one or the mm -hmm. other. Uh, absolutely. And, and there can be different terms about what you just called publication bias. I, I tend to use the term um, significance chasing uh, or, or significance chasing bias or excess significance bias. Uh, but there's so many terms uh, that have been coined in different <laughs> fields trying to describe pretty much the same phenomenon. Because people have seen yes. that this is... P-hacking is a very popular term in, in psychology and, and other sociological sciences, but um, it, it, it's, it's just a fact that people have seen that this is a major problem and have coined these different terms to try to describe it. So when you use the metaphor of a needle in a haystack, that there might only be a couple in, in a big data set, I actually, I think maybe a different metaphor is that there's, there's an infinite number of needles because there's all mm -hmm. these correlations that, that can look significant in a in a data set of large size and most of them are are not meaningful that is they're not replicable they're not going to replicate it they're just the product of randomness randomness uh, is that is that a, a would that summarize that summarizes my worry about big data what, what do you think about it so, so yes, I mean, I, I, I probably I wouldn't use the term needles to describe those because needles would mean that they're true. Yeah. Um, but in, in, an, in a universe of big data, you're entering uh, an environment that has the opposite problem of what we are describing in these meta-analyses that belong mostly to the past. Well, they, they belong entirely to the past, by the fact that they're meta-analyses. Um, most of the studies in the past were small studies. They were underpowered, they were at risk of uh, these false positives and false negatives and exaggerated results. Uh, now we have more and more big data studies which are overpowered and we're, again, uh, just testing with 
the typical statistical significance tools that we have, um, nominal significance means close to nothing. It, it, it's, uh, it's likely that any analysis will be statistically significant one way or another. And um, then you, you don't really know. I mean, the, the, you know, then statistical significance has very little discriminating ability to tell you which ones are the real needles and which are, are, are just flukes. So for all graduate students and, and professors listening to this in economics and any other field, when I now go to a empirical presentation of a presentation of an empirical paper, I ask with a straight face, how many regressions did you run? You know, the table, mm-hmm. I, at the end, I get a table and the table's yep. got all these asterisks and the asterisks are all significant at the 0.05, significant at the 0.005, significant at the point, you know, it, 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 it's just full of, of significant results. And I say, that's, you know, lovely, but how many times did you, how many regressions did you run? And it's such a startling question the couple of times I've had a chance to answer, ask it. They don't. Even, they don't answer it. It's not because they're embarrassed. It just never crossed yeah. their mind. It's not even a uh, a question. So the problem I think in our field and in others, epidemiology being an obvious another example, is that there's so many opportunities in the kitchen uh, with, with to do uh, whether it's p hacking or what uh, what's been, what Gelman's called the Garden of Forking Pass. I have so many decision mm-hmm. nodes. Uh, to try different things. And unless you watch the videotape of how the food was prepared, you have no idea if it's safe or not. Exactly. And and much of the time you cannot even count them. So there are some situations yeah. where at least you can count them. Like uh, genetics, for example, uh, you can count how many genetic variants you're testing. Uh, you know, if you're honest to yourself and to others, you, you know that I'm testing 10 million variants and you know what their correlation structure is and you can use a formal correction for that, uh, either just a multiplicity correction or some other way with a false discovery rate or something equivalent that will take care of the exact multiplicity burden that you have. In many other situations, we don't really know exactly how much multiplicity we're dealing with. I mean, we are probably fooling ourselves because we're going down that uh, garden of forking paths and we lose count down the down the path of of how how many nodes did we need and and how many options were there in each mode and and how many choices do do we make and and many of these choices could be even subconscious or or mild modest modifications of one analysis versus the original one so it's it's very difficult to estimate the exact multiplicity burden in that case it's uh, you know it's there uh, but you can't really put a number and you can't really use some direct method to correct for that multiplicity. So if you're giving advice to a young scholar in any of the fields we're talking about, and I guess it could argue it's every, almost every scientific field in a certain dimension, but let's talk about observational studies as opposed to random control trials. So they have their own separate sets of issues. But people who are doing what is what for now for, I don't know what, 90, 80 or 90 years has been classical statistics. Mm-hmm. And I I'm a skeptic, right? That's I've carved out that that uh, niche, and it's I, it's a dangerous niche because if you're not careful, you just reject everything. You say, "Oh, we can't know any of this stuff." Now, that's yeah. obviously not true, and I don't really believe that. But I am highly skeptical of these observational studies. Uh, should I be when someone presents me with the result? What's what should I as a as a practicing economist or practicing epidemiologist? What advice would you give us for trying to figure out what's true? Well, I, I would probably go back and ask um, 
is an observational de design having any real chance of giving us some reasonably decent, reliable answer here? And, and there may be many situations where they could uh, give an answer that is fairly reliable. I mean, it's unlikely that it will be conclusive and definitive. In a way, nothing is 100% definitive, but at least uh, high enough in, in, in that scale of being definitive that, that uh, you can take it to the next step. Uh, there, there are some situations where when you just think about what are the odds of getting it right, uh, maybe some designs are just not to be used. You know, you, you should not use them. You should just abandon them <laughs> for, for some types of questions. Uh, to, to give you one example, we have performed hundreds of thousands of studies trying to look whether single nutrients are associated with uh, specific types of disease outcomes. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you see all these thousands of studies about coffee and tea and uh, all, all Broccoli, sorts of uh, red things meat, that you can wine. eat. Um, and they're all over the place and, and they're always in the news. And uh, I think it's a complete waste. You know, we, we should just decide that we're talking about very small effects. Uh, the The noise is many orders of magnitude more than the signal, if there is a signal, and maybe there's no signal at all. So why are we keep doing this? We, we should just pause and, <laughs> and abandon this type of design for, for this type of question. We would like to know, we'd like to know, and that desire to know is so strong. Of course, of course, but, but, but to know we need to use the right design. So I would argue for, for this type of questions where the, uh, the error is 50 times bigger than the signal, we need to find designs that minimize the error. And our best chances in these cases, if we still believe that it's important to know, they would be randomized trials, or at least experimental designs that minimize confounding, minimize error um, as much as possible. Even those may not be able to get us an entirely definitive answer. I'm not saying that they're a panacea, but at least we know that we're not starting completely off base, uh, even knowing that we will get it wrong, no matter what. <laughs> uh, there, there's other cases where observational designs may be very useful and uh, very illuminating. There's sometimes effect sizes that are big uh, in situations where we can have a, a pretty good understanding of what the confounders might be and, and what is really influencing what. Uh, and in, in that case, they, they're definitely having a role. So uh, we never got a randomized trial to, to prove that, that smoking causes cancer, but smoking increased the risk of cancer 20-fold uh, as opposed to 1.001-fold that many of these nutrients uh, do. Uh, so I would never argue that we need a randomized trial for, for proving that smoking is a bad thing for us. Um, it, it has to be seen on a case-by-case -case basis, but there's, there's a lot of observational research that is um, really going beyond the performance characteristics of the designs that are being used. And, and, and I'm, I'm not sure that this is a good investment. One could always say that I do this for exploratory purposes and just to get a preliminary insight, but I, I worry that much of the time we just don't get any preliminary insight and even these data that emerge are, are just biasing our thought. Oh, I agree. I, I want to go back to big data for a minute and just the general question and in, in how I want you to think about empirical work. A lot of younger economists uh, have told me that 
you know, theory is overrated. Uh, we just need to look at the data and see what the data say, uh, and and the data will speak. What's your thought on that? And that and that's part of, by the way, I think the the appeal of machine learning and and the and yeah. big data is that, you know, our theories are imperfect. So we'll just see what's what's what the reality is. Is the way they they I think think about it. What's your thought on that? Well, I, I'm I'm not saying not to look at big data, but looking at big data, you see the patterns in the big data. This is not the same as saying that you see the truth or that you see causal effects or that you see the answer to important questions. You, you see patterns. Um, I'm very eager to do that, and I, I, I do waste a lot of my time looking at, at patterns in big data, but I, I want to be honest to myself that, that I'm just looking at patterns. I'm not looking at the final frontier. And these patterns are sometimes very difficult to interpret, and based on different theory, they would be interpreted very differently. So I don't think that we have the end of theory. I don't think that we have the end of statistical testing in, in any means as well. But big data have to be seen with, uh, with a lot of caution. I, I, I think that um, we really need proofs of principle that these sort of analysis eventually do help and, and are useful. So it's, it's not just an issue of uh, uh, is it true or not, but, but also an issue of, where, well, does it help? And can you build, for example, policy and decision-making on them? And to be honest, I have seen very few examples where you can build reliable policy and decision-making based on big data. I mean, you, you can probably mislead your policy very easily with big data, and you can mislead it in, in any out of a zillion ways that, that you may want. Um, but I, I would like to see more concrete examples where, where that would really be helpful. Uh, for the time being, I see it more as exploring an interesting space, learning about the data, learning about their patterns, learning about their errors, their biases, uh, how we can fix some of these errors. So it's, it's like a machine that is uh, still to be probed and, uh, and, and try to see what can we make out of it. So given your uh, skepticism about many des research designs and the nature of uh, the complexity of the world, one of the issues that I struggle with is people then assume I'm, I'm against science. <laughs> uh, right. I know you're laughing out loud, but they say it about me all the time. And I, you know, I, oh, goodness. And, I and I also say, um, I also make the argument that very few, maybe zero questions in economics have been settled by a, a single great study. And I think that's true of science generally, by the way, mm -hmm. it's not an economics mm -hmm. problem that empirical work tends to build up over time. But even in economics, uh, there's always a loophole. There's always a way to say, oh yeah, but that, that was after the war. You see, after the war, there's always, a since we don't typically do what I would call real science uh, with experimental real control trials, even even in the ones that we call real control, you know, randomized control trials, they're subject to the location, they're subject to the context, they're subject to the, the way the instructions are given. So I'm just – I'm overly skeptical, which is, again, I concede maybe a flaw, but I don't believe that evidence or facts are irrelevant – I do believe I have changed my mind about lots of things. It's just not when I open up a study of econometric and go, well, I guess I was wrong. How do you handle that? Do you uh, get a lot of that or not? So I, I think that there is a risk that uh, you may get pushed back uh, by people saying that if you uh, uh, – 
kind of uh, disseminate the picture of science getting it wrong and having so many problems and so many biases and, and so many difficulties, then uh, you may offer ammunition to people who yeah. say that science is not worth it. Uh, and of course, this is a risk. Uh, but at the same time, in a way, uh, this is the way that science works. I mean, science is not working with dogma, is not working with absolute truths. It's working with some healthy skepticism. It's working with the desire to, to reproduce and replicate uh, what we see and document it very carefully to diminish biases, to improve methods. So this rational and to some extent skeptical thinking is at the core of the scientific method. I don't think that we should abandon the scientific method or distort the scientific method so as to give a, a message that science is perfect because that's not what it is about. It's, uh, it's a very difficult endeavor. It's fighting and struggling with, with errors and biases on a daily basis and trying to do our best and getting as close to the truth as possible. I think also that if, if we go along the narrative of science is perfect, uh, whenever you have these debates and uh, contradictory data and uh, uh, big promises that are not fulfilled, then science becomes a very easy target for the wrong reason. And people say, you, you promised me that, and, or you told me that, and now this is not so. And we have not really uh, m made any cautious announcement ahead of time that, uh, well, we know that with not perfect certainty. We know that this is maybe 60% likely to be true, but there's a 40% chance of error. Or maybe there's a 70% chance of error. Unless we are accurate about our level of uncertainty, I think we will run into trouble. And I, I think we are running into trouble. And in, in medicine, we see that all the time. I mean, you, you can have just a single paper that got it wrong. Like, you know, Lancet publishing a paper that uh, MMR vaccines uh, cause autism. And, and then you have hundreds of millions of people who don't want to vaccinate their children. And, and we're heading back to the Middle Ages. And, and, and the problem started from getting it wrong and, and not having a message that we could get it wrong. And, you know, some of our papers in our top journals could be wrong. And that was not just wrong. It was more than that. It was actually fraud, which is not so common. But right. um, so, so how do we give an accurate picture of what science is which to me is the best thing that has happened to Homo sapiens sapiens, but it's difficult and it does have errors and biases. And that's what we're struggling with every day. Well, I interviewed Adam Sifu, who's, you know, co-author with uh, Vinayak Prasad of the book ending medical reversal. And what medical reversal is, is this idea that there's a study comes out and says, this is good, or this is bad. And people take it. Well, it's, you know, it's peer reviewed. So therefore it's, um, it must be true. And then, when they, that's an observational study. When they go into the randomized control trial, they find out that it's the, the results the opposite. You shouldn't do that technique, or you should do something else. And I, I just think it's um, I think it's an extraordinary thing, actually, given given our power of reasoning that we are that we have so many false uh, positives and, and false negatives because of our love of science and, and statistical sophistication. It seems like a big challenge for us to overcome that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, a lot of people suggested we should uh, change the level of statistical significance. Um, it's funny. There's no law. It's, it's not, there's no, there is a law. There's no legislation as, as we make that distinction here. Uh, it's a norm that 0.05 is the right amount. What do, you, what do you think of that as a way to – we should be more, more demanding. We just should make a higher hurdle for people to get to statistical significance. And then we have people like Andrew Gelman who have said we should just stop talking about it completely. What's your thought on that? Mm -hmm. 
So I, I was one of the authors in, in the paper that uh, uh, suggested moving the traditional threshold from 0.05 to 0.005, so adding an extra zero. Um, and I see that as a temporizing measure. I don't see it as a, a perfect fix. Uh, I think that in many, most circumstances, actually using statistical significance with p-values is, is not the best way to approach the scientific questions. In, in, in a few cases it is. Maybe I would say in the fields that I'm working in, which are mostly biomedical but not necessarily so, about 20% of the time uh, null hypothesis significance testing would be the way to go indeed. Uh, the other 80% not at all or, or, or very second or third type of, of choice. Why did I uh, co-author that paper? The, the reason is that we're living into a situation where we have a flood of significance. So <laughs> that extra yeah. zero is like placing a dam uh, to avoid uh, death by significance, uh, you know, drowning by significance. It's a temporizing measure. Uh, it, would it solve all the problems? No, but probably based on what we have seen across different fields, uh, about on average 30% of those false positives would no longer be false positives because they, they would be in that borderland between 0.05 and 0.005. But and you're assuming so, you're assuming that the authors wouldn't have tried harder. Well, the, then the question becomes: once you have that dam in place, uh, authors would be p-hacking around that new standard. Yep. Uh, so instead of trying to pass the 0.05, they will be doing their best to pass the 0.005 threshold. But this is becoming a bit more difficult uh, for them. And uh, with the current sample sizes that are circulating in, um, in most scientific fields, this is not going to be easy. Uh, when they do make it, uh, then the bias will be worse. <laughs> yeah. So, so the, the average inflation for exaggerated results would be even more, but there would be fewer such. So I, I see it as having some advantages, some disadvantages, uh, probably on average substantially more advantages at the moment compared to disadvantages. But it's not the, the perfect fix. It's not the end of the day. What else? I think that uh, we, we need to think more broadly about replacing our statistical inference tools with more fit-for-purpose tools and also moving to the design phase of research. So, you know, designing studies that have a higher chance of getting us closer to the truth with less uncertainty. What do you think about pre-registration where a scholar would put down in writing somewhere publicly what they were going to be looking at to reduce the uh, p-hacking uh, work in the kitchen? I'm, I'm very much in favor of pre-registration, and, and I have supported that for, for many years, over a decade in, in various fields. Um, I think it can help. I think that it has helped in some domains like clinical trials in medicine. Uh, is it perfect? No. Uh, about 50% of trials are registered, and of those, about 50% are properly registered, and of those that are properly registered, about 50% uh, report their outcomes, uh, and uh, of those, maybe 50% are well done in other dimensions of their design. So uh, eventually it trickles down to, to smaller small and number. smaller numbers that would be protected from various biases, but at least it's a step in, in the right direction. Can we apply to any type of research? 
I don't think that this is easy to do, and I would be very happy for lots of research that is exploratory just to acknowledge that. So if, if something has been obtained uh, through a garden of forking paths and, and zillions of analysis and extremely complex meandering paths of, of thinking, uh, saying that this is pre-registered is, is, is just trying to fool others and fool ourselves. The, the, what should be conveyed about this research is that it was entirely exploratory, extreme data dredging at its best, and uh, that's fine, provided that we know that this is what it was. And then, at, at a second stage, someone could pre-register a study that follows that exact same meandering recipe that emerged from that exploration. Different data set, different time period. Uh, a, a different yeah. data set, different study. Uh, now that you have this very peculiar combination of, <laughs> of choices and design and analysis, okay, that's what you got. Let's try to, to repeat it and, and see whether it works. Anything else you'd like to recommend to editors or young uh, academics for how to make this problem uh, get better? Any policy changes I, you're in favor of? I think that that uh, it's not a, a one solution that would fit all. There's uh, over a dozen families of solutions that uh, are being discussed, and, and some of those I have reviewed in, in some of my recent papers. In a way, some of these solutions could be complementary or they could coexist and uh, one may help another. Uh, so uh, creating a replication culture, uh, pre-registration, yeah. data sharing, protocol availability, uh, better statistical methods, fit for purpose statistical methods, strong, uh, stronger and more stringent thresholds, different types of peer review, more openness in peer review, more transparency. Uh, all of these have lots to share. Uh, so. It, Sharing data can facilitate peer review. It can facilitate replication. It can facilitate team science. It may lead to making pre-registration more plausible. There's very high correlation between these ideas. And eventually, these ideas would work if we have multiple stakeholders who believe that they're worthwhile adopting. It's very difficult for a single scientist to just go out there and say, I'm going to do it differently than all of you. Uh, it's very difficult for a single journal to do that. It's very difficult for a single institution to change their practices. But if people recognize that this is a good idea and you have multiple journals, multiple institutions, multiple funders, multiple scientists who believe that this is the way to go, then we do see change. So, so for example, registration for clinical trials had been out there as a possibility for 30 years, but it, it was not really happening until all the major medical journals said, I'm not going to publish your trial unless you have pre-registered it. And, and then funders also joined, and, and then everybody wanted to do it because they wanted to have their paper published in the best journals. Sure. And, and the same applies to other fields. I mean, economics has made tremendous progress over the years in terms of some of these transparency practices, especially the best journals have adopted several of these practices. So I want to apologize to you. Uh, I think I first heard about your paper... Uh, most published results are uh, fall. Why most published research findings are false? I think I first heard about it from Nassim Taleb. I, I'm guessing I have to go back and look. I didn't look, but and I just I thought, well, that's ridiculous. That's just silly. Uh, what kind of a paper is that? Uh, <laughs> and it was a theoretical paper. It wasn't like you went around and then you went and remeasured it and you showed they mismeasured it. You just it was a it's a very interesting paper actually, and it's obviously and it's a very uh, uh, provocative paper. 
Uh, so my apologies. I, there was a lot more to it than I than I had thought from the title. And uh, but my question for you is, since you say you constantly be, you want to be constantly reminded that you know next to nothing, you write a paper like that, and then the Brian Nozick and his team in psychology finds that only forty percent of the top papers in psychology of the last ten years replicate. You must feel pretty smart. So how do you keep how do you keep your humility? Oh goodness! Uh, I, I think that it's a trick uh, question. There's so, Sorry, so so, <laughs> so much potential for for making mistakes and errors, and uh, and you know just finding biases or or not knowing about biases that you have your in your own work. That uh, some some humility is is indispensable. I I, I think that um, this is what's really interesting and, and nice about science that uh, there's no end to, to revealing how many mistakes you can detect and you can fix. And and saying that I have detected the the final mistake and now I have <laughs> been doing perfect research, that's uh, you know very presumptuous. So I, I, I'm trying to not forget that. And I, I'm, I'm trying to keep reminding myself that maybe all of my work is wrong. Who knows? <laughs> What are you working on? You took on economics lately. What else are you working on? So uh, as part of the work that we're doing at uh, the Meta Research Innovation Center at Stanford, the, the, the big privilege is that um, we can work across very different types of, uh, of domains. And uh, I'm, I'm surprised and excited to, to see that many of the problems that we have seen in biomedical fields are not just applicable to these biomedical fields. They, they occur... In, in very different areas. So um, we have a, a great network of collaborators and I, I really enjoy working with people who are not in, in my core fields because they, they can really teach me about what's going on in their field and uh, um, what are the issues. So my, my collaboration with, uh, with Tom and with, uh, with uh, Christos Dukliagos in, in that paper was really fascinating for me because obviously I'm not an economist and getting to know that literature from an insider view was, was really fascinating. At, at the moment, I'm, I'm working on appraising biases and, and trying to test out solutions in, in very different fields. Um, and and, and uh, it, it's, uh, there's, there's really no end to it. I, I think that... Um, there's a lot of exciting work happening in psychology and social sciences, uh, economics just as well. It has has some very exciting leads at the moment. There's a lot of questions on, on big data, on registration of different types of studies, on um, new designs for randomized trials, on uh, advantages and disadvantages of experimental designs versus observational data on pragmatism, on uh, how do you differentiate between credibility and utility in, in research, implementation issues of research practices, reward systems and incentives, trying to network different universities and leadership of universities and funding agencies and, and readdressing and rediscussing how do they prioritize rewarding and promoting and funding scientists. So it's. Uh, I feel a little bit like a kid in a candy shop. There's, there's so many things going on, and and uh, all of that is just so exciting. Well, as an economist, um, although all the, I would call it the nuts and bolts of um, of good science, transparency, reg- ideas about registration, survey, research design, experimental design. These were all 
really, really important, and it's important to try to get them right. I would just suggest it's hard to get them right in a world where we as academics now can make a large sum of money, and we're getting on the front page of the New York Times is still a lot of fun, and also is the institutions that we work for tend to really like that. So as long as that's there, your big challenge, and I salute you for taking it on, is how do you fight against that fundamental incentive? Uh, we have this romance about our task that we're just truth seekers, but we're also human. And uh, those those financial incentives have changed so much over the last 50 years for the you know mainstream members of, of economics and, and other fields. Mm-hmm. Well, th- there's clearly some incentives that mi- are misaligned, but... Um the the question is how is is how, is how can you really realign them and uh, the, I, I don't think that there's anything wrong necessarily with financial incentives it's it's just an issue of how do you get them to work for you and for better science rather than hmm. for some more short term gains. My guest today has been Johnny Anides. John, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.